0: If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Passport is hosted by me, Neil Ennis, and my life-saving friend, Anders Bartos. That might be hyperbole. Hang on, this is my girlfriend. Hey, Hey, how you doing?
1: I'm
0: leaving now okay I'm just recording a piece of script where oh, I rough. yeah but I have to uh I have to describe my relationship with andres just say lovers yeah but we're not lovers
2: best friends like if you were teenage girls you would be the best thing forever I don't know it's like you're like kind of soulmates or something like that you and andres it's like you have known each other since you were kids but you didn't I don't
0: know. Yeah, I yeah, I kind of feel that way too, but it's hard to say it into a microphone. So that's going right. that's nice that you have just said it for me. So
2: I'm gonna win the show. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Bastard Well, I don't think I can do it any better than that. <laughs> um, ah, god damn it! A destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. Okay, so hosting a podcast with someone else, especially this podcast where we travel, it means you really need to love the person you're sitting next to. There's like zero social distancing in this booth, which means there are hardly any secrets between myself and Andres. So we thought we'd shed this conversation we had a while back. Do you remember how we first met?
3: I, I remember that Jennifer Beals is involved. <laughs> <laughs> Loosely. It's funny though. They, it, what was, because the, the link is obviously Jennifer Beals's brother. Yeah.
0: Gregory Beals. who's He's a
3: photographer Beals. and he lives here.
0: I, because I, I met Greg, I think it was like the day before. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. That's crazy. He was on the street with his bike. Okay. And then we just got chatting and he's like, hey, let's go for a beer. I'm going for a beer tomorrow. And he's like, and there's this guy coming. Andreas." Yeah. He must've ridden me the day
3: of or the day before. Yeah.
0: But then I realized he had never met you. No. He also just kind
3: of, like, set us up like a weird date and then left.
0: I was there with Greg. We had one beer right as you arrived. Yeah. And he went, okay, I got to go, guys. And just left us. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was... I mean, it, I don't think it was... I never felt it was
3: awkward. But he very clearly somehow was like, no, you guys obviously should
0: meet. We were there for, like, four hours. I
3: think we closed, if not closed the bar, like, pretty close to closing the bar. Yeah. I think we met because... Gregory Beals quickly realized he didn't want to hang out with us anymore.
0: <laughs> I primed him with one beer and he was already like on the edge and that, then you arrived and you say, like, "Oh, Jesus, I can't fucking handle this two of them." <laughs>
3: it's one of those things where clearly we're both film nerds. So I think we just talked movies for four hours. We did. I'm pretty sure that was it. Like, I don't think we talked about our lives or anything.
0: (laughs) I remember going home and Mary, my girlfriend was still awake. And I was like, I've,
3: I just met this amazing guy and we're going to be friends forever. (laughs) And Mary was like, I had just come off of working for, for years like crazy and had not had a conversation like that about movies in years. And then, you know, because yeah, we spent four hours. So I was like, well, it must have gone, well, yeah, it was amazing. It was one hell of a chat. But what is up with Gregory Beals?
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I never would have said we are going to be making a podcast <laughs> together. That was another thing. It is true. We had movies, but then the other thing we talked about was podcasts. Because very yeah. quickly we realized we were both listening to the similar, if not same things. Yeah. While we were working together, you wrote to Mark Maron. And that letter got played on the Bruce Springsteen episode. I did,
0: yeah. Yeah, if you want to hear the story of how my baby was born, you can check that out on uh,
3: WTF. (laughs) You can find it on all (laughs) podcast (laughs) platforms. I think it's on Stitcher now. No, Spotify. I don't know what it is. Let's
0: plug this podcast. (laughs) Man. Passport. Passport. Here we go. I'm going to have a heart attack. Don't have a heart attack. Cough. (coughs)
3: <coughs> yeah, coughing stops <style clears throat> attacks
0: Oh, I got all tingly in my arms Oh no, really? Yeah
3: Both? Because that's a stroke
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh How's your jaw? Oh, it's, it's been nice uh, even... <laughs> It's one hell of a This is going to be an excellent radio thing <laughs> <laughs> First time we met And when I saw Neil die before my eyes
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, geez <laughs> <laughs>
3: So we speak to so many people from all across the world when we're making Passport. And as you can imagine, we have some pretty amazing conversations with some incredible people. And some of these don't make the show in their full glory. So this week, we wanted to look back at some of our favorite chats so far, bringing you some fresh bonus content that didn't make the final cut. We'll be traveling back to Seoul, Nuuk, and LA to hear about the real world of K-pop, Greenland's most terrifying monsters, and the dark heart of Charles Manson's L.A. It's that dark side we're
0: heading to first. On our second episode of Passport, we went to L.A., skipping the Walk of Fame and Venice Beach to take a look at something else, Charles Manson's Los Angeles, and his dream of becoming a superstar. There's as many myths about Charles Manson as there are about L.A. The night his family murdered Sharon Tate in Roman Polanski's home has gone down in the city and the country's folklore. But forget everything you've already heard about that night. It turns out there are a load of other theories which shed light on what might have really happened when Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel traveled from Manson's Spahn Ranch to Cielo Drive in 1969. Remember Ducani? Well, we had a three and a half hour conversation filled with stories you wouldn't believe. And he filled me in on some of the thrilling tales in our LA episode. Well, here he is again with a couple of other theories about what really happened that night. Including Sharon Tate's last moments on film, some suspect glasses, and the fact that Manson may have revisited the house on Cielo Drive.
1: There's speculation there has been for decades that after Tex and the girls went back to spawn, they told Manson what had gone on there. And Manson went up to Cielo with somebody else and they tried to rearrange the crime scene or did rearrange it to some degree. The American flag in the um, Tate living room that was draped over the couch, this was something that um, Manson brought to the house Uh, The Cielo drive house after the murders, they left behind a pair of glasses, allegedly, you know, by the steamer trucks that had just arrived that day because, you know, Sharon Tate had been in Europe and had arrived back at Cielo about two weeks before the murders. She took a boat because it was too late for her to fly um, at at that stage of her pregnancy. Yeah, she took the Queen Mary, I think. Actually, her final moments on film was in the film uh, 12 Plus One or The 13 Chairs. And she's actually seen in her final uh, moment in the film, and she's waiting goodbye. She's about to board a boat, which is interesting because that was sort of Polanski's last glimpse of her. He saw her off the boat. And I think that her her, uh, trunks had been, you know, held up in customs and so they had fi- just been delivered to the house that day, the day of the murders, and they were they were in the uh, the foyer of the house, and they were, you know, somewhat blood splattered. When the police came to the scene the next day, they found a pair of glasses, reading glasses, next to the steamer trunks, and this was one of these clues that they withheld from the press. Like they were trying to kind of, you know, learn who these glasses belonged to, and they, they kept thinking, if we can find the owner of these glasses, you know, we'll have her kill her. And um, oh supposedly there was a pair of glasses that the family had out at spawn that they would use to start fires with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, are you serious? Those glasses they found in Sharon Tate's house after the murders, they belong to the family. The press never quite got hold of it, but Duke says it's pretty good proof that Manson turned up at Tate's house again after the killings. And it's not the only conspiracy theory that exists about that night. Duke claims that there is actually film footage of Tate seeing Manson out her window. No one's ever discussed it, but these shots are sure to be seriously chilling if they ever find them.
1: And this this, this is, amazes me that, that more has not come out about this. Okay, so... Sharon was, there was a a photographer who had known her for a few years, and he was doing a documentary about four young actresses on the rise, and one of them was Sharon Tate, and he was at the house apparently that day, he was shooting footage for this documentary, his name was Hatami, I believe, now here's something really fascinating, he testified at the trial that he saw this guy out on the lawn, and he opened the door, and he said, you know, who are you, what are you doing here, and uh, Manson said, oh, I'm looking for Terry Melcher, and this is a name that, you know, Tommy didn't recognize. So then apparently he came back later that night when Sharon Tate was inside. She was planning to leave the next day for Europe to make this film, and they were having sort of a go- going away party. So he did, He went back the next night. And he went to the guest house where the owner of the property was staying, and Rudy Altavelli was his name, and he told Manson, you know, Terry is not anymore. So Manson knew that Terry Melcher was not at the house. But th- it could be that he went back to the main house. We'll never know, because the only people that could have told us, aside from Manson, would have been uh, Sharon and Jay and, and, um, yeah. and Abigail and Wojtek, who were all, of course, killed. But here's the thing that I find really fascinating. If you look around on the internet, you will see, if you look up uh, Sharon Tate and Cielo Drive and, and you look for images, you will, you will find a very small photograph of Sharon Tate packing uh, for her trip, going away. There's and there's one of her in Abigail Folger's bedroom, the guest bedrooms, and she's looking through the window onto the front lawn.
2: Right.
1: And I used to wonder why is this not like larger? Why is this frame so little? Well, it turns out. Again, Hatami was shooting footage for this documentary So he was, you know, he's up at the house in that day Sure And I think it's very possible that this image of her Looking out to the window of that bedroom Outside onto the lawn What she's seeing is Manson Outside the house <laughs> And so there's actual there could, there could be actual footage of Sharon Tate Seeing
0: Charles oh, Manson Fucking Manson Wow, man. That's fucking crazy.
3: After the break, we'll be back with some K-pop chat with Koki from EXP Edition and superstar Greenlander Maria Krutzmann gives her top five myths and monsters. See you in a minute.
0: Hi, everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people... On the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circuittravel.com to sign up.
3: (sighs) That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk
1: about starting the morning right.
3: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm. Mm. visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient, comfortable Ah. we're heading back to Greenland the episode you all heard last week we sent our monster hunter extraordinaire Billy Cragentoon back to that cold barren island to find out some more about those weird spirits who live there One of the favorite conversations for the episode was with Maria, so he called her back up for a chat about her new book and her five favorite Greenlandic monsters.
4: Hey, Maria. Hello. Nice to speak to you again. How's it going?
5: So nice to speak to you again. It's going really well.
4: So, Maria, you have some more monsters from your book to to talk to us about. Where do you reckon we should begin?
5: So I have chosen a couple of monsters that I already talked about in the previous podcast that I would just want to elaborate on a little bit, maybe. Sure. And then I've chosen some of my favorite monsters. So I chose for, well, I guess number five is a monster called an Ikusik. And the Ikusik is, it basically means the one on the elbows. And it's a monster that I grew up with and was absolutely terrified of as a child still probably still as an adult i'm not going <laughs> to lie um <laughs> because it is it was the most scary thing growing up and when people would talk about this monster you would put your the palm of your hands on your cheeks and kind of move your elbows and it's the kind of origin story of it is that it's a corpse That crawls along on its elbow because its arm has rotted away and it drags its feet behind it. But even though it's kind of like a zombie state, it can still move incredibly, incredibly fast. And it can catch a grown person running. If you come up here and you say an seek people will know what you're talking about. And most of my friends grew up with stories about this monster.
4: Oh man, that's so creepy.
5: It's very horrible. Okay,
4: so that was the bottom of the list. It hit me. W- so what's number four?
5: So number four is the which I mentioned in the earlier podcast. So if a person shamed himself in some way or did something bad, he would leave a settlement for the better of the settlement because back in the olden days it was so and still today I might add it was so important for a community to work that everybody pitched in and nobody did anything to disrupt the community that was the way to survive when the person who left the settlement he would go into the mountains and he would walk around just to sever all contact and he could either live in solitude which is how I uh, grew up no one revi but we also dug up stories of these other living together in this huge settlement far, far, far north. So we have the biggest national park in the world here in Greenland. But there are these stories that there are still groups of living up there, completely separated from modern society. And they roam the mountains up there because Greenland is so vast and so huge. I wouldn't be baffled by the notion that somebody hasn't had contact with anybody up there. I don't know how true this is, but I really, really like the story.
4: And then so number three, where are we going?
5: So number three is something called an Innoho. And Innoho, yeah, I know you're not going to be able to pronounce that to save your life.
4: (laughs) It sounds almost like some kind of instrument when you say
5: it. Yeah, well, yeah. So the Innohawk, it's a little bit special because it's an animal that can change its, its shape so it resembles a human being. We have a lot of scary monsters, and this is actually a very sweet one. Parts of it will resemble the animal that it was before it turned into a human, so... It can be dressed in feathers, if it's like a raven, and if it's a polar bear, it might be clad in polar bear skin, and it's just very, very sweet. So it
4: it helps people in distress?
5: Yeah, it can help people if you get lost, if you're in the fjord, or if you're in nature and you can't find your way back, it can come and it will help you and lead you back, or it might be with you if you're feeling really, really alone and distressed in the wild.
4: Oh, that's so nice.
5: Yeah. So it's a friendly animal helper.
4: That was a nice one. So far, so good. Yeah. What's Maria's number two?
5: So Maria's number two is one of my absolute favorite. And she is called Asiak. And Asiac actually just very simply, the direct translation means weather. And she rules the wind and the weather.
4: And she's doing a real good job of it.
5: Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> I think she's getting tired of global warming, too. <laughs>
4: Understandably.
5: So, her description is also really funny because her mouth sits vertically in her face and her eyes and nose kind of like across the face horizontally. And everything about her is like kind of like wrong and topsy turvy. And even her bed is upside down. And she said she's wandered the earth, kind of like since the dawn of time, she's always been there and she's always looked for a husband, but nobody wants her because she has a crooked face. And that's really, really mean. And because she couldn't find a husband, she stole a a boy child from another woman and then she brought the boy child up so she could marry him and her husband he's kind of like this enormous enormous giant figure but he's baby-like and he wears like a lot of bracelets and and necklaces but if she gets disturbed in her house by a threat she can turn him into a baby and kind of like throw him behind something because usually in you know the men are the hunters and the protectors and everything but here she kind of you know she's the one who protects him and he's just there to be a husband she's kind of like the boss lady and he's just he's just there
4: god and that's kind of creepy as well isn't it it is very
5: (laughs) creepy that was number
4: two okay so we've gone from bottom to the top so maria's number one
5: and the number one that i chose is sesuma alna the mother of the ocean because she means so much to me. And I wanted to talk a little bit about her origin story. One of the more common one is a young girl who is a orphan and she lives with the settlement. And the whole settlement was moving in the Umiak, the women's boat. And they were packing all the things up and they were sailing out. And one of the hunters, he's kind of like the leader of the settlement, but he's a really, really mean man. And he doesn't like this orphan girl. And they get out into kind of open water. And he gets really angry at her. And first he takes a lamp and he throws it overboard. He throws the dog overboard. And then he throws her overboard. But as she's thrown, she grabs onto the boat and he gets really really angry so he takes a big hunting knife and first he cuts off the first part of her fingers and the fingers fall into the water and these first joints turned into all the fish that lives in the sea and she's still holding on for dear life so he takes the knife again and cuts off the next part down to the next joint of her fingers And all these kind of like fall into the ocean, turns into the seal and the voluses and everything. But she manages to hold on still. And he gets really angry now. He takes the knife, he cuts her fingers one more time, and the last part of her fingers that fall into the ocean turns into all the whales. And, you know, she can't hold on anymore. She falls into the water. She sinks, 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 sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And this is where something magical happens. And as she kind of falls to the bottom, she kind of goes, oh, you know, this is a really beautiful place. And she starts walking around, and she finds her dog, and she finds her lamp. And she builds a little house in the deepest parts of the ocean. And this is where Sesuma Alna lives. And she grows to become this huge woman without fingers. And she has her big hair where all the animals live in. So what's interesting about this story is the fact that our traditional tattoos that we have on our hands are usually the lines that represent the part where Sesuma Alna's fingers were cut off. This particular... Tattoo pattern is something that represents the story and the reverence that we have towards Sesuma Alna and the sea because the sea is everything up here.
4: That was a really, really great story to, to finish on.
5: Yeah, I have a lot more creatures in my book.
4: <laughs> <laughs> How do you say it properly?
5: I say Bestiarium Conlandica.
4: Bestiarium Conlandica. Okay, thanks again, Maria. That's a wrap. Well done. Ah, thank you. Next
3: up, we're going back to Seoul, the capital of South Korea, to chat to Koki Tomlinson, one quarter of EXP Edition. You remember, the world's first ever American non-Asian K-pop boy band. Koki's insight into what it's really like to be part of the globe's most exciting new genre of pop music was truly fascinating. He told us about how they got big, the culture shocks of moving to Seoul, and we even got to hear some of EXP Edition's tunes. So here's a cut from Koki's chat with producer Harry Stott on how the K-pop industry really works, some of his more crazy fan experiences, and how amazing it has been to see K-pop blow up all around the world. Oh yeah, it's their track, Feel Like This,
2: you'll hear at the
6: end. So what was like your your first experience of K-pop then?
2: It's actually really funny because I remember in eighth grade on the bus, I remember a few kids... Clambering around their phone and it was Big Bang music video, Haru Haru. I mean, it, it was a very bizarre thing for me to see, not in a bad way, of course, but just seeing Asian men in a musical group that was really popular and then like widely liked by a bunch of non-Asian people. And uh, in that music video, they are wearing quite a bit of makeup. So I was also like confused with that. That that was my first true introduction to K-pop.
6: Yeah, and and obviously you were really involved in the K-pop world when you were in Seoul. So how does the K-pop industry really work? I've heard there's like a kind
2: of formula for the music. I mean, yeah, 100% there is definitely a formula. Even to the point where like the three main companies, YG, JYP and SM, literally have like their types of people that they would pick. And they also have singing styles that they would do or very specific like choreography styles that certain companies follow because that's their company image and that's the types of groups that they promote. Yeah, 100% like the popular dance move and the hopes that it does go viral because at the end of the day, that's what put a lot of K-pop groups on the big screens or like that's what skyrocketed their popularity. So yeah, and when we were also making music and, and trying to come up with our choreography and everything like that, we did have that in mind. But I think we also wanted to stay true to ourselves and not so completely follow a formula because we didn't want to get rid of everything that made us, us.
6: Yeah, for sure. But I I guess that formula is clearly working. I mean, K-pop is huge everywhere now. So how has it been seeing K-pop get
2: so big globally? Yeah, it's definitely becoming a lot more mainstream. It's always had that underground fan base that's been extremely strong and supportive. But yeah, only now are groups going on these huge American TV shows and doing interviews or performances, which is so cool to see. You know, BTS is beating out so many of the biggest American artists in terms of like sales and streams and they're selling out world tours. It's fascinating to watch. Both while being in New York and while being in Korea was extremely fascinating. And now being back in the states, and I'll go to a Starbucks and I'll hear Blackpink playing on the radio, or I'll hear a BTS song on the radio, or there will be like an announcement for something, and they're like, "Monster X will be performing at <laughs> this show," or, or like Seventeen's playing. And it's 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 bizarre to come back from Korea where that was the norm. And then to hear it in the States becoming more normal. I mean, it's fascinating. It's bizarre, but amazing at the same time.
6: Yeah, but with all that popularity, I mean, I've heard in Korea about like the really hardcore Sasaeng fans, the ones who can be
2: a bit like invasive. I mean, did you guys experience any of that? Not to the extent of what the mega popular groups do. I mean there are stories of fans shaving their heads and to look like boys so they can go into the the men's locker room or men's bathroom to try to like meet their idols. There was one story where um this fan snuck into their dorm rooms and took pictures of the members sleeping. <laughs> and it's and yeah, that would be terrifying, but most of the people Most Korean fans of ours were just very supportive and cool and normal. There were quite a few fans who would come to like every single show, big or small, that we did, and they'd have gifts for us and things like that. There was one incident where these two fans like followed us to where we, like the area that we lived, and we're just like walking around the area waiting to see us. (laughs) So that was a little bit weird, Um, but... (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that was the um, closest to, I guess, that Sassing fan definition.
6: Yeah, and beyond the Sasaeng fans then, I mean, did you guys feel like a real pride from normal people in Korea about how huge and successful K-pop has now become globally? Like even from
2: non-K-pop fans? Yeah, why shouldn't they be? proud of something like that it is a small country and to have such a global impact culturally is huge because prior to k-pop becoming such a like mainstream global genre of music the only people who could have those world tours were artists based in america you know you'd have the backstreet boys or britney spears or (laughs) justin bieber all popular culture came from america And so for a country that's a fraction of the size to have such a global impact culturally, I think is something that should be held with pride.
0: That's it for this week, guys. Next week, me and Andres are kind of off to Paris, where we'll try and help someone with the perfect wedding proposal. But it's also a competition between me and Andres. (laughs) It's our first episode of A Tale of Two Cities. So we'll see you next week with that. Huge thanks again to the amazing Duke Hanny, Koki, Tomlinson, and Maria Kurtzman for their insight into L.A., Seoul. And Nook in Greenland. Interviews in this episode were performed by Billy Craig and Toon for Greenland, Harry Stott for Seoul, and me for Los Angeles. And the episode was written and edited by Harry Stott. Our theme tune is by Nick Turner with extra tracks from Thirst Follow, Brevin, Cape St. Francis, King Kerr, and of course, EXP Edition. Thanks, guys. Our production assistant is Eliza Engel. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kozneski. Stacy Book, Dominic Ferrari and Abby Glajanski sometimes give us the week off. They also executive produce the show, which is hosted by myself and a man who loves a bonus mixtape more than most, Andres Bartos. We'll see you in the next place.